All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in Leviticus 24 and 25, if you want to turn there. Where are the ushers? That's it. She'd win, that's for sure. Hey. You know, before we get into this, just want to let you know, next week we have a baptism. Uh, we got a lot going on next week. Um, we have a packing party for the uh, backpacks that are going over to Africa. Then we have a potluck, and we also have baptism. So um, you may have to choose. <laughs> we'll, we'll do the packing party first, and we'll do, the, ba- we'll do the, uh, um, the potluck, and we'll probably do the baptism somewhere in there. I don't know when, so we'll figure that out. But if you want to be baptized next week, we'll meet out at Mazingo after second service, and we'll go ahead and and do that. Um, We'll have another one before fall, or in the fall even, maybe. Um, And uh, so keep that in mind. That's that's coming up next week. We lost Gary last night. Gary, say it again, it's very German. You have to say it with an accent. Dienstspeer. Used to sit right behind Michelle there. And uh, a massive... Stroke, and uh, they decided to let him go last night. That was a tough call for Lori McKinney. That's her uncle. And uh, he's gone on to be with the Lord. Wonderful saint. Just a blessing. Every time I'd see him coming, he'd pull in his Jeep here, and uh, you know, he'd say hi to me and all, and it's just a, a, a great guy. Um, and now God's got a great guy. And uh, he was a great guy because of God, let's put it that way. And uh, so he's gone on to be with the Lord, so that funeral will be coming up. Um, but pray for Lori. That was kind of a tough call last night for her. You know, you had to make that kind of decision. But um, anyway, um, I say it with a sort of a, you know, we're sad, but there's a smile on my face too because I know where he is. He's with the Lord. And, and just like we sang, there's no place I'd rather be. And uh, he is there. Everything we just sang about, we're hoping for, he's doing now. And so um, I'm happy for him. Anyway. All right, and then Thomas and uh, Michaela, they're off and running to Chicago. They're married. <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> That's why we didn't have piano. The, the piano player's married. The kid's like, well, he's never, he's never been this big. He's always been young, though, and, and man, now they're, it's just, they're, here they go. There's that, that crop is on their way out, so um, happy for them. That went really well yesterday, I think. Um, and they're going to Chicago, so pray for them in Chicago, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> All right, Leviticus 24 and 25. The first section, chapter 24, um, the Lord's going to go over some things with the Levites about how to take care of the tabernacle and the lamps and, and things going on, then some penalties, um, and then we get into uh, some... Well, in chapter 25, we get into the year of Jubilee, but the part I want to get to is at the end of chapter 25, so I might rush it a little bit here, so bear with me. The first part is the care of the tabernacle lamps. Remember that menorah that's on the left side of the door when you come in, come in that first room there. It's on the left side. Seven lamps are there, and he says, this is how you take care of that. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the the testimony um, in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps 
on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Now, these lamps had enough oil in them to last 24 hours. That was how big the little pots were that would hold the oil. And this is where Hanukkah comes from, not this year, but this situation. That's why uh, during Hanukkah, they have, the Jews have the, uh, the seven lampstands there. It's a, it's a mini version of this thing that we're talking about right here that would, it, would be in the holy place. Well, they have it. And what happened was in 167 BC, 167 years before Christ, Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar trying to defile it. Well, that got him so upset that they chased this joker out, all the Romans, out of their area and recaptured the Temple Mount and uh, reinstituted it, but they only had enough oil for one day's worth of light. So they put the olive oil inside these lamps for one day, and they burned miraculously for the full week until they had enough to replenish, and that's why they celebrate Hanukkah. That's where that comes from. That's what this is all about right here, this lampstand that had to be renewed every day with new oil and to keep it lit constantly. It was very important to have those things lit. All right, verse 5. And you shall take fine flour and Bake 12 cakes with it. They're more like loaves of bread, but they call them cakes. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. This is on the right side when you come into the holy place. Menorah's on the left, uh, lampstand's on the left, the gold table on the right with the bread. And each loaf of bread represented one of the tribes of Israel. So there's 12 loaves on there, and they would replenish these every week. So he's describing what they need to do. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. So the only folks that could eat this would be the Levites. This is their bread. Now, if you remember the story of David, when he was running from Saul, he runs into these guys and he says, do you have any food? My guys are hungry and I'm hungry. He says, hey, all we've got is the holy bread. And he says, we'll take it. <gasps> you know, you're not supposed to eat that, but he was. And he did, and it was okay. Um, God didn't smite him and everything. There was something about King David um, you couldn't be the high priest and a king at the same time, and therefore it was really not appropriate for David to take this bread. But under the circumstances, since God had anointed David to be the king of Israel, um, and Saul was not allowing that to take place and so on, it hadn't happened yet, um, that's why he was able to eat that. So that's what we think anyway. Verse 10. Now the son of an Israelite woman, now this is a, an anecdote, a story of what they do with blasphemy, those who blaspheme the Lord, Okay. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. Now, where did the Egyptian guy come from? Well, remember, they're just coming out of captivity from Egypt, and some of these ladies would be taken slaves or whatever. Some of these Egyptians actually would come out of this with them. If they believed in what God said about the Passover lamb, um, that that angel of death was going to come through and wipe out anybody that didn't do it. Some of the Egyptians and some of the, uh, the non-Israelites would do this, and they got saved too because they believed God. And so they came out. So that's where this guy comes from. This is a, a child that's half Egyptian, half Israeli, but isn't following the Israeli faith. Okay, doesn't believe. Okay, he's not a believer. Um, and so we see him blaspheme God here. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed 
And so they brought him to Moses. Now, I don't know what the dispute was about, but I can imagine if he's half Egyptian, half Israeli, and this other Israeli guy got into it, it must have been something about their walk with the Lord or their worship of God. You know, hey, you can't be doing that. Don't you know you're an Israelite? Well, I ain't no Israelite. I'm an Egyptian. That's kind of blasphemy. You know, you are, um, and, and you're not following like you're supposed to. That's my guess, though. We really don't know what was said. His mother's name was uh, Shelomith, the daughter of uh, Debri, or Debri uh, of the tribe of Dan. So they put that in their list of who this guy was and his mom. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. What do we do with this situation? You know? And so they prayed, and they sought the Lord, and they asked God. And this is where they would go up to those lights of perfection. Remember, the priest has those 12 stones on here, and we don't know how or what or how it happened, but God would answer them through these, okay? Uh, Urim and the Thummim, um, that was the black and white stone and, and so on, um, to get answers from God. And so they're trying to find out what God's mind is on that. And that's a great thing for us to remember. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it's always important to get God's mind on, the, on things in your heart. What, what should I do next? What's the plan? I don't know how, what, or when, you know, get God's mind on it. Find out what he wants you to do. That's always the best. We're going to be doing that today after the second service here. The board's going to get together, and we're going to seek the Lord's mind on whether we should buy that land next door or not. I, you know, I, we don't know whether we should or not. Um, we don't need it. It doesn't make any sense, really. But then again, it's open and for sale. And I don't know what God wants to do. I'd, I'd hate to presume that God doesn't want it or whatever. So we're going to seek the mind of the Lord on it. I don't care either way. I just want to do what God wants us to do, you know. So we're going to do that. And so I'm just telling you that so you know that we're doing it by example. We believe God's word. We don't just make decisions based off, well, the square footage and the amount of money we have in the bank doesn't make any sense. And we should, hey, I don't, it's not up to me. This is God's place. This is God's plan. I have no idea what he's going to do in 30 years. I don't know what he's going to do next year, you know. So you seek the Lord on things. And so we're going to do that. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed, then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and all, let all the congregation stone him. Now the reason they do that, not the stoning part, but the laying on of hands, is you are responsible for what's about to take place next. You are witnessing and saying that you're not lying, that this kid blasphemed the Lord. Right? Right. Now lay hands on him because you're now responsible for the sentence that's going to be imposed upon him. It's kind of a heavy deal to know that it's as, it's as bad as you, I'm going to get to pull the switch on the guy, you know, uh, wherever the electric chair is or whatever. I'm going to pull the lever so that the guy hangs. That's the idea behind this. You're responsible. Make sure you're telling me the truth. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Why? Why is the death penalty imposed here? Because God wants everybody to know, look, you, can, you don't have to have me. It is, it is, you are perfectly free to blaspheme me, but understand what the consequences are of not having me as your God. The consequences are death. That's a fact. That's how it is. And so you blaspheme me, I'm not just mad, or I'm not trying to build up my reputation and try to show you who's boss around here. I'm saying, without me, you die. That's a fact. And so he carries that on through. Same as today. Those who don't have Christ in this world, 
He's not, we're not going to stone you. We're not going to take you out back, lay hands on you, and throw rocks at you, but you die. That's a fact. You cannot go to heaven without God, without his plan of salvation. You can't get there. It's nothing about it. You're absolutely free to not have God. You're absolutely free to not have Jesus. That's your choice on the matter. It's their choice on the matter. But please understand the consequences of it. The consequences are death. If a man causes disfigurement, oh, verse 17, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. In other words, murder. If you take some, you know, your, your buddy's, uh, I don't know, horse or whatever, and, and you kill it, you're responsible to replace that horse. If you murder another man, you're responsible. And here's where we get the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor... Um, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. That's a deterrent. (laughs) I think I'm going to get in a fight. Well, you best be careful because whatever happens to this guy is going to happen to you. Well, I don't want to get a fracture. I don't want to lose an eye. I don't want to lose a tooth. Then you best back off. That's the idea behind it. The second thing is you can't go further than that. It's also a limiting thing. It's even. It's equal. You get your eye knocked out, you can only knock his eye out. You can't take them both. Okay? You get one tooth knocked out, you can't knock out all of his. You know, disproportionate response. It's not appropriate, as God said. No, you can't do that. So that's where this comes from. It not only deters, but it also limits the kind of vengeance that a person might take. Verse 22. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. The law is applied evenly and equally. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. That's put in there to let everybody know they followed through on it. They believed him, and they did. Um, and the example is then complete. You see that full circle. Now, chapter 25 is interesting. It talks about redemption. It's interesting. We sang some songs about that. Um, And it talks about the seventh year, and it talks about the year of Jubilee, but then it also, at the end, talks about slavery, which is about the most important thing we could discuss this morning, to learn this morning, slavery. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, they're on their way, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath uh, to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of, of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, uh, for you, your male and female servants, your hired man, and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. Now, he's going to build on this a little bit in verse 18, but, um, and, I'll, and I'll spend more time on it. But basically, he's saying, look, let your land get a break. You're going to wear out the land every year, you know. You, you, you can, six years is fine, but give it, a, give it a year off. Now, they're not saying you just don't farm all year long. You can just sit back. I mean, I suppose they could do that. They could sit back and just kind of say, I'm not doing nothing this year, honey. Well, nice. That's a big, long break. Um, but probably not. They probably rotated, you know, 
Um, if you've got 70 acres, you'd let 10 acres rest each year is the idea. And so you'd be farming the other 60. So um, that's probably what took place and how they did it. But God says, no, you don't want to wear it out. I, I want you to do that. Now, in 18 through 22, we're going to have more details about how God provides for him during this lean time. Um, uh, but um, this is what is going to cause the nation of Israel to be taken into captivity into Babylon. For years, they didn't let the land rest. For years and years and years, they didn't have that seventh year until finally they get taken into captivity so that the land can have its rest. Says, I said, I'm going to have my land's going to have its rest. It will take a break. And you have, you've decided to use that opportunity, that seventh year when I, which, spoiler alert, 18 through 22, he's going to abundantly bless him in that sixth year so it carries him through. You took advantage of that to get ahead by not giving me what I asked for, that one year off for the land. You used it and you put it in the bank thinking you're getting ahead. I'm not outsmarted, God would say to them. I'm going to just take you out of the land yet and put you in slavery for a while, and the land's going to have its rest just like I thought, just like I wanted. For 40 years, it's going to rest. It's just going to sit there while you guys work over here and earn nothing. See, you don't get ahead. You don't gain. I just can't afford to let that land rest. I just can't afford to take that day off. I just can't afford. You can't afford not to. And one way or another, God's going to get his rest. He will. He does it. And so that's what this is all about. Give the land a rest. If they, had a, if they had done this, this is the thing. If we just do what God tells us to do, everything works out just like it's supposed to. It's a beautiful life. It's a wonderful life when you live just the way God wants you to live. It's when we try to sneak by or find the loophole in God's laws. Well, I know it says this, but what about this? Well, I don't know, Fred. That's a great idea. They had a rule about how far you could walk on the Sabbath. You can only walk so far. Until you, had, until you had to get back home again. So the businessmen who were traveling and had to go from city to city, and those cities were too far to go on a Sabbath day journey, and they didn't want to take that day off, they'd build booths in between the cities so they could walk a Sabbath day and rest in that booth and say, I'm at home, I'm at home. They'd sneak around it. Man, we do so much work trying to get around, just being obedient, when all we have to do is do what God tells us to do, and it all works out. I think about all the lying I did in high school and in grade school and in junior high. I think I just lived a life of lying to my parents. When actually, if I'd just done what they'd asked me to do, it would have been a great life. I wouldn't have been grounded all school year long some years. I mean, all year. You're grounded for two months. And then I would like do something else at the end of those two months. You're grounded for another year. And, or you, you know, I didn't say a year, but it was a month at a time sometimes. No phone to take away from me. I just had this. I mean, it was grounding, grounding, like tethered to the house kind of grounding. You didn't go anywhere. You didn't do anything. Didn't matter what kind of party there was or dance or friends sleepover or whatever it was. You just didn't go. Oh, if I'd just done what my parents had said, I'd have gotten A's for one thing in school and not, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) And I'd have had freedom. I'd had freedom. I spent so much time trying to get that one thing that I couldn't have. I spent my whole year at times not getting anything. What a waste, you know, what a waste. God just wants us to obey. Now the year of Jubilee, verse 8. 
this is great. Every 50 years, they get this day or this, uh, this whole, everything kind of reverts back to its original owners. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. So there's Sabbaths of days. That's the seventh day. Sabbaths of years, okay? Um, that's every seven years and the seventh year. So you got like a, a week of years, a week of days, a week of months. They do that sometimes. So this is a week of years. Count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of the years shall be to you 49 years. So he did the math for us in case we couldn't figure it out. Seven times seven, it's 49. Okay, thanks. Then you shall cause the trumpet of Jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants it shall be a jubilee for you, for, for you, and uh, each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. Okay, so it's like a, it's a get out of jail kind of thing, you know, jailbreak kind of thing. Every 50th year, no matter what you had done, no matter how far in debt you had got, um, it was arranged in such a way that on that 49th year, after that year was up, everybody went back home. See, they would sell themselves out to be a servant or to be a, an indentured servant basically over here or over there. Um, and then on the 50th year, you got to go back home again. And you get your house back too um, if you lived out in the villages and so on. And he'll explain that here in a minute. Everything reverts back. And he doesn't want people to be without. He wants everything to go back to it. So, you know, even if you got so far in debt so bad, at the end of the 50th year, it kind of gets back to where it's like a fresh start kind of thing, you know. Um, of course, that would only happen one time in their year, in their lifetime. You'd have one jubilee. It gets depends on when it happened, I guess. Uh, you could have two. Um, but anyway, what a great thing. And, and God says, no, I want it all back to the way it's supposed to. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. It is, a ju- it is the jubilee. Uh, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell it to you. So, basically, I'm 30 years into the Jubilee. I've got 20 years left. So you only buy 20 years worth of rent, basically, on that land because you know it's going back to that person at the end of it. So you'd never give them full price for the land. It's 5,000 an acre. You'd never give them the full price for that because you know at 50 years, at that 50, 20 years from now, it's going back to them. So you prorate it, basically, is the idea. Um, So he's just making sure they understand him. he knows how legalistic these guys can be, and, and like their lawyers, you know, all of them. And, uh, and so they're trying to figure out, how, how can I take advantage of this, you know? Um, hey, it's according to the years. You're going to need to prorate everything you buy. According to the multiple, multitude of years, you shall increase its price. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of the years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Okay, so it's, a, it's, it's meant to work out pretty well here for everybody, if they'd follow it, if they'd follow the rules. So... Now here he fills in the gap here in verse 18 of what they're supposed to do on that seventh year. Anytime they give the land a rest, well, how are we going to 
You know, how are we going to make that stretch? Do we ration it out or, or what? So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce, then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. So you get the idea there, okay? Um, So I'm going to give you three years worth in one year. Here's the thing. This is how my mind thinks. For one thing, the land isn't really getting that much of a rest if it's going to produce three times as much the year before its rest time. It's actually shooting out all of its, you know, all of its nutrients right away. And yet I want you to take that day off or that year off, and then the next year you sow, and then the next year it grows. And so you've got three years worth. Why does he do that? He wants us to have this picture of rest. I want you to do this. He could have just kept it even. Eh, Just don't worry about it. Just keep farming and farming and farming and don't worry. No, I want you to take this time off. I want you to rest. He wants to produce in us that desire and that heart and that looking forward to the seventh year. Well, God kept his part of the bargain here. He did let it produce threefold on that sixth year, but they didn't let the land rest, and that's where Babylon came into play. That's where they got taken away. They were storing up two years' worth. That was a big year to boost their 401k, basically. And they just stuck it in the bank. And God watched. God didn't prevent them. He watched, and he watched, and he watched. And somewhere along the line, in those years of letting this all happen, they got the idea that God was okay with what they were doing. That's a very dangerous place for any of us to be in where God freely gives us the option to obey or to not obey, and we disobey and he doesn't do anything. And we disobey again and he didn't do anything again, and we disobey again and he didn't do anything. I think I'm okay here. Mm, Watch it. Be careful. Be careful. God is gracious, he's merciful, and he's long-suffering, but but justice will be done. The land's going to get its rest. It does come out. You you don't get away with it. It's going to be paid for eventually. It's best just to do what God asks you to do and to do it according to his word. Not trying to get by or trying to sneak by, you know. So important to understand that. And so he says, you know, I'm going to take care of you. And God kept his part of the bargain, but they didn't. And so we have that problem later on in in uh, in their existence as Israelites that they go into captivity in Babylon. Um. Anyway, verse 23. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. In other words, you're staying in my place. <laughs> it's my land. And it still is. It still is. We make globes after globe. By the time they produce a new globe for me to put in my homeschooling classroom or your public school classroom, it's already obsolete because the boundaries have changed. What do you mean there's no more Kazakh rock and stand, you know, kind of thing? Well, there used to be, but last, that was last year. You know, that's been taken over by Rarakama, you know, or whatever. And you just, you don't know. I thought it was the USSR. No, 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 that's where the former Soviet Republic of whatever, you know. It changes all the time. And it just shows us that, look, the earth is his. And he owns all the land. We're tenants. And we can change the boundary lines all we want. But God removes and puts in place whoever he wants to. And he wants him to remember that. 
You may sell your land, but that land's going back. I don't want the tribe of Dan, who's going to get a certain amount of land, to start acquiring land from his brothers until pretty soon it's the nation of Dan and not the nation of Israel and all 12 tribes. And so every 49th year, the 50th year, it all reverts back. So they all keep the same land. It's always going to be the same. So you can lease it. You can rent it out. You can have someone farm it for you if you want to, but it's going to come back to you in 50 years. Um, It all goes back. He didn't want that to change. It's mine, he says. Now, and in all the land of your possessions, you shall grant redemption of the land. That's the key word here that's coming up, redemption. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has some uh, has sold some of his possessions, and if, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man who has uh, no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, uh, that he may return his possessions. So there's no way to get ahead in this, you know. Um, you can take the profit from whatever you got off that land, but you can't, you can't, well, if you want it back, it's going to be this much. No, 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 we've already, we've already set the price as the buyer. This is how much I'm going to pay you for the land. Then when he wants to redeem it back, according to that buyer's selling price, I got 10 years left on this. I'm buying 10 years worth. We just prorate it. Okay. So he's making sure it's fair. It's, it's sort of that, let me, not that you need it dumbed down, but it's good for me to do it sometimes. It's like when you have a, like a piece of cake left and you've got two kids that want it. You let one cut it, the other one gets to choose the piece first. You guarantee you it's right in the middle. I guarantee it's going to be right in the middle. And that's the idea here. You can set the price, but you get to buy it back for whatever price he sets. And so it keeps it very fair, very even. All right. Some, some of your parents went, that's how you do that. Okay, I got it. <laughs> Yeah, they'll get out rulers. Just okay. And the other guy will get out the ruler. I think that one's a quarter inch bigger. Mine, you know. If a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a, a whole year after it is sold. So you've got a year to buy that. This is the only exception. You've got a, a walled city means in they would make the walls homes. Basically, they're they're solid. There's a window maybe facing outward, and that's about it. A little window, but all the other windows faced inward, and it was the wall of the city. So you could sell your home, and you only had one year to redeem it back. Otherwise, it stays. It stays in that person's possession. So um, you only had one year for this. And so he, he makes a little exception here. Um, but if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the jubilee. That's the exception. However, the houses of villages which have no wall around them shall be counted as the fields of the country. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the jubilee. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites, now these are the, the tribe of the Levites had their own very, they had their own cities, they all lived together, and the houses of the cities of their possessions, or possession, the Levites may redeem at any time. And if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then that house, uh, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel, but the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. Okay, what that means is that Levites, their job was simply to work at church. They had no way to have any other income. You can't be taking their stuff from them so that they can't get it back, okay? That's theirs, okay? So it always goes back to them. Verse 35. 
If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury. In other words, don't take collateral uh, or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money uh, for usury, um, nor lend him, money, lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Now, Jesus, uh, uh, you know, gets on and says this. Look, if you, if you die, you know, if you've got this guy's coat, you've taken it as collateral, and it's the end of the day and he hasn't paid you back, give him his coat back. That's what I mean by not taking collateral. You don't get to keep it like a pawn shop or something. They keep my gun until payday, and then you don't come back on payday, and they get to sell your gun for a huge profit, and you got like 100 bucks out of it or something. No, 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 you don't get to keep the stuff. That's not going to be your property at the end of this. God says, I'm, you ought to just be helping them out anyway. You ought to be just blessing your brethren and helping them out. Um, and so he sets up some rules for it. Now, slavery. This is where I wanted to get the whole time. Now I got... 10 minutes or 15 minutes is all. All right. Slavery. A lot of folks get it. Oh, this is uncomfortable. I love it. I love this section right here. It's so important to understand this. Uh, Verse 39. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave, as a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you, and you sh- he shall ser- and shall serve you until the year of jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. You can hire yourself out, but you can't make them a possession. Later on, he's going to say you can make the strangers a possession, though. Okay, he's going to advocate for it for slavery. There's a way to do this. Here's the thing. But your brethren, you can't. At the year of Jubilee, they get released, like the land gets released, like the home gets released, they're released. So if you're going to hire someone and have them live in your home and you're going to take care of their room and board and all the family that they have with them and they're going to work for you for that, make sure you understand at the 50th year they're going back. So if it's 40 years into it, you've only got 10 years with them, pay them that much. That's the idea. That's how much you're going to have them for. So consider that. Prorate them. It's the same thing. But you can do that. We just have a different system. We just hire ourselves out to our bosses, and our time is worth so much of their money, and we do that. We make that arrangement all the time. This is what they're doing is all. I, I'm going to work for $12 an hour, $15 an hour, $20 an hour. We agree to that, and that's what you do. We don't say thank you at the end of the day. I worked. You paid. Good enough. Even transaction. That's what's going on here. They just had it where you lived in with them, basically. Um, so that's what's going to happen at the end of your jubilee. For they are my servants. They're not your servants, they're my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them with rigor, but you shall fear your God. And as for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, um, whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Go ahead. Here's what he's getting at. The brethren that I've purchased, the ones that I've bought and paid for, They're my servants. They're just hiring you out. I'm loaning them to you, and you keep that in mind. I'm their boss, God would say. At the end of 50 years, you release them. That's how it's going to work here. But I'll let you have them. They're like a subcontractor, basically. Um, You're you're, uh, outsourcing (laughs) is all it is. I'm trying to use the modern terms for it. Um, But I want them back at the end of that. But the strangers that I didn't redeem, they can be purchased. 
They can be owned as property. They can belong to you perpetually. And this is where you have all those that are opposed to the Bible saying the Bible advocates slavery. Yes, it does. And there's a reason for it. And if you don't read the Bible, if you don't read it from cover to cover, you don't understand, and these moments are awkward, and you sit back and you say, yeah, I know it says that, but that was in the Old Testament, and I don't know, things have changed, and well, you know, we can be wrong sometimes, and we look like a bunch of bumbling fools, because we got to read the Word of God. Why is he saying this? Why is he saying it's okay to own strangers, but it's not okay to own people that I've redeemed? Because that is the thrust and the reason for Jesus Christ coming and dying for the cross. If we don't embrace this text, we don't understand what Christ has done for us. We have no idea why he's redeemed us or what he's redeemed us from. We have no idea the pain and the suffering that being a slave to sin, being owned by a taskmaster named Satan, and what it means to be redeemed from that by the blood of Jesus Christ brought out of that, why, Paul says, would you want to be enslaved to that again? It's so important to understand this. So... I've got lots of scriptures we're going to go through here really quick. And as for your male and female servants who you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children. In other words, they don't even get released when you're dead. You can pass them on in your will to the next generation after you, to inherit them as possessions. They shall be your permanent slaves, but regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. You can't own the folks I've redeemed, but you can own everybody else. It's a picture. It's supposed to show us something here, what it's like to be there. Let me run through you nine scriptures. I'll read them to you. You can mark them down if you want to to read them later. First, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It, say, it sounded the best to me. Read it any translation you want. It all says the same thing, but this is the way it reads. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. That's the first scripture. Do we know that? Do you understand that the world around us is under the control of the evil one? 1 John tells us so. First, uh, uh, John 12, 31 is the next scripture. The time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out, but he hasn't been yet. That's important. He's still the ruler. Uh, John 12, verse 31. Ephesians 2, verses 2 through 3. You used to live in sin. This is Paul writing to the Ephesians. Just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. We've sold ourselves into that slavery. We've been purchased. We're a permanent possession of Satan at that point. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 He canceled the record of the charge against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. So important to understand that. What was nailed to the cross? What was nailed there? My purchase price, my my debt was nailed to that cross. As a slave to sin, as a slave to Satan, my debt that was owed him was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
his life for mine. I could have been passed on from generation to generation, but I'm not. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Adam sold us all into slavery, and generation after generation, we were born and raised into the house of Satan. And we've all been under that bondage. And it's only through Christ's blood that we were ever redeemed or could ever break that cycle, and our kids won't have to grow up in that. That redemptiveness, that redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. You are no longer a slave to Satan, but you are now purchased by God. You're a slave to Christ. You're a slave. We've been going through that on on Wednesday nights. You're a slave to to, uh, righteousness now. We present our bodies no longer as instruments of wrath, of instruments of Satan to be used at his will. We present our bodies now by the one who purchased us, and we're now under his authority to be used for righteousness. And finally, Galatians 5.1 So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. We can put ourselves back under there. We can try and flirt with Satan and say, I know you were a taskmaster. I know you beat me every single day. I know it was was hopelessness under your care. But I've been redeemed. I've been set free from Jesus. And now that I've been over here, I look back at Satan and Sometimes you long for that, to be under that control, under that authority again. And, and God doesn't understand that. And Paul, when he writes, doesn't understand that. Why do, you, why do you submit yourself to the one that God broke the chains to? Why do you put yourself under that taskmaster Satan anymore, that, that evil overlord? I don't know what it is about us. And Paul was just dumbfounded. Why would you ever put yourself in that position again? I think a lot of people put themselves in that position because they've never really come to terms with what they've really been delivered from. What have we been set free from? What has God removed us from under? What has he replaced in our lives from Satan being our slave owner, our master, our boss, to now God, who's good and gracious and merciful and provides and doesn't beat us, you know? This slavery thing is so important to understand. This isn't advocating for slavery. This is showing the pure, harsh reality of slavery. It's ugly. Don't do it. Verse 47. Now, if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you, 
or to a member of the strangers. Now it's not us buying, it's not the Israelites buying strangers, it's strangers buying them. After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him. Or if he is able, he may redeem himself. You can always be set free as an Israelite. You may fall into that authority once in a while, but you can always be redeemed again. You can always be purchased out, whereas a stranger on the outside can never be redeemed, can never be brought out of that by themselves. That has to be done by Christ. Hopefully you get the picture here. So, he shall repay the price of his redemption from the, moment, from the, from the money with which he has bought. And if there remains but a few years until the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him, and according to his years he shall repay him the price of his redemption. He shall be with him as a yearly uh, hired servant, and he shall not rule with vigor over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed in these years, then he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Now, three scriptures, and then we'll close today. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. Well then, Paul says, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you, are now you wholeheartedly obey his teaching we, give, we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves to God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. With his own blood, not with the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. And then finally, Colossians 1, 13 through 23. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Christ is supreme. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realm and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he, first, so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. 
He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. And that's what we're here to proclaim. Are you a slave? Are you not a believer in Jesus Christ today? Have you been enslaved to sin and you've never been redeemed by that? You've never called upon that and asked Christ to be that redemptive power in your life, to bring you into his light. He died for the sins of the world. Understand that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not, ever, should not die but have everlasting life. That's been done. It's the believing part that's missing from the transaction. The price has been paid, but have you redeemed it? Have you used it? Have you accepted him as the payment for your sins? Have you been bought out of slavery? You need to today. It's as simple as praying with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you died on the cross for our sins. We know that. We know you paid the price for our sins and we still feel like we're in bondage to Satan, but today we don't want to be there anymore. We want to live for you. We want to be under your authority. We want to have you to be our God. We don't want to worship this God of this present world in whom we're enslaved We want to be set free from that, God. And so we believe that you died on the cross for our sins, that we've been redeemed. And now transfer us, Lord, into your possession, into your hand, that you would rule and reign over our lives, God, that we might live for righteousness and be completely set free from the bondage of sin, God, which brings death. But in your life and in your your world, under your care and authority, we have everlasting life. We thank you for that, God. And so, God, we believe on you for salvation this morning. We trust in you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.